Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the Classic Lenses podcast. My name is Simon Forster and I'm hosting this podcast from Stoke-on-Trent in the UK. Joining me today are Carl Havens in Gainesville, Florida. Hello, Carl. Hello, Simon. And we have Johnny Sisson in Chicago. Hello, Johnny. Hey, Simon and Carl. Last week we had a great talk with James Giordano, pro photographer and admin of the Photography with Classic Lenses group. And I just want to thank James for a really interesting conversation and an entertaining one at that. Now, this week we're actually going to carry on the freeform discussion style that we had last week. But we, before we do that, um, here's Johnny with some feedback and comments from last week's podcast. Right. Um, we had a lot of feedback uh, on James's uh, uh, visit here on the show, uh, and rightfully so. I thought that was a really interesting conversation to have. And others kind of commented on that same point that it was interesting to hear from uh, a pro shooter who's who's been doing this quite a while to hear what their experiences have been like. So, um, and then Rob Wolf and James over in the uh, uh, photography with classic lenses Facebook group had a nice exchange about uh, a lens that they both own, but James hasn't actually used yet, which is the Meyer optic Gorlitz uh, 200 millimeter F4. Uh, so James get to work. Get those lenses going. So um, th that also led to some other uh, talk about MOG lenses in the Facebook group this week. Um, Wendy Heyer posted a uh, a picture from her new uh, Triaplan, uh, the 52.8, and asked a similar question. Um, uh, kind of kicked us off with, you know, what what is your one all-time favorite lens and why? And then we had uh, Shem Malik. Um, he had a similar question, which which was. Uh, which uh, which one of your what was your first classic lens? So we had a lot of interesting um, conversation this week about favorite lenses and first lenses, which um, kind of uh, gets right to the heart of what I think we love about these about these lenses. So interesting comments there. Um, uh, so yeah, you know, please uh, after uh, this podcast, if you listen to it, please post your um, your your comments and suggestions and everything else uh, in the Photography with Classic Lenses group. And we will wrap them up and uh, recap each week on the show here. Uh, you can also follow the conversation over in the MF Lenses uh, website. It's mflenses.com. Is that correct, Simon? I believe so. Uh, and uh, we have a comment thread going there um, that, started, that Simon started off, I think, after maybe the first or second episode. And that's a really good place to um, follow kind of an ongoing conversation in one place. And that's just a great group um, generally to be involved in if you love what we do here. Uh, so Simon, you've been talking with some of our listeners. Yeah, that's right. So uh, yesterday I was at the uh, Wolverhampton camera fair. Uh, it's something I've been doing now for, I'll probably be doing it three years now. Uh, I mean, it happens five times a year and uh, I, I hire a table or maybe two tables and take over uh, quite a few of my classic lenses and uh, old cameras and you know, sometimes some new stuff. But uh, this time I shared a table uh, with one of the uh, members of our Facebook group um, and he's also a listener of the podcast as well and that's Paul Middleton. Paul's got a very interesting history actually because uh, he's been involved uh, with selling lenses going back many many years um, so he's a, a font of knowledge there um, but there are also two other people at the um, Wolverhampton Camera Fair uh, that again are avid listeners and uh, members of our Facebook group and 
uh, one of them being uh, David Lloyd, um, who was there um, selling much of his uh, collection um, with a view to you know, try and reduce it. But I have a sneaky feeling he's, re he's reducing it so they can fit new things into it rather than get rid of things altogether. And uh, we also had Nigel Cliff there who uh, had a, a good chat with. He had a, a problem with, uh, with an adapter with an FD lens. Um, it was a, a breech lock lens. And I know this is something that uh, a lot of people struggle with breech lock lenses at times. I know that Johnny, I, it's a it's a favourite kind of lens of yours. Um, breech lock, yeah, yeah exactly. And uh, yeah, because it, it, it's it's complicated further because you get there are two versions of the FD mounts. You've got the new FD, sometimes called NFD, and then you've got the breech lock FD. And if it's a, a regular, well, if it's the later one, uh, it's more of a regular kind of bayonet lens. Uh, but the previous ones, the breech lock ones, you, you you simply offer up the lens to the mount and there's a, I'm not sure what the right, there's a, a sort of a ring that uh, that grips onto the mount of the of the camera, which you then turn uh, to lock it into place. But if you're, if you're not entirely familiar with that action, then it can be very, very confusing because it can seem that the, the lens could be permanently jammed on there. So uh, I'm glad yeah. I was able to help Nigel out there. Yeah, those are those are tricky. I, I had a lot of people come into the the camera shop at Central Camera with uh, trying to adapt lenses, and yeah, I mean adapting a uh, the the first style FD with a breech lock, and then putting on an adapter that also has a breech lock. So now you have a double breech lock. Mm. It can be a little it can be a little uh, challenging and tricky. You just have to remember to always to open them back up to the zero mark on the top. So it's it's interesting because I I like that adapter. It's um, it's one of my favorite kinds of adapters, and um, after you've used it on a number of lenses, and you get the hang of it, it's I think it's really simple and it's and it's quite elegant. And um, as I have a few um, Canon FL lenses, one of the things that's odd about it though is some of the old FL lenses, the really old ones, the bottom of the lens isn't flat. It has a, I don't know how to describe it, but a little shelf that rises up. And you have to take the pin out of the adapter to put the lens on, or it won't fit onto the lens. So you have to keep that screw somewhere so that you don't lose it, because you need it when you use the other newer lens. Yeah, that's right. I, th I first came across that with a, an FL 58 1.2, which is uh, my my first 1.2 lens, and I think it's actually a lot of people's first 1.2 lens because it's the it's the cheapest 1.2 lens regularly that you that you find out there but uh, I think one of the reasons there's a good reason why it's the cheapest one it's it's probably in my view the least desirable f 1.2 lens that there is because it's it's a tough lens to use it's a, it's got a really odd uh, aperture system you've got two rings on the aperture um, but it's not it's it's not two rings in the same way as a, a preset but it sort of is a preset and I'm, I'm really struggling to actually explain how the, how the thing works because even when I had it, I, I, it, it confused me on many, many occasions. But the lens itself, it's, it's great if you, if you like uh, relatively soft pictures and, uh, and you, like, you like plenty of flair in your pictures as well, then uh, it's, a, it's a great lens for that. But for more normal kind of photography, I, I felt it was a, a little bit of a disappointing lens. And uh, the, the 55s and the, uh, the 50s, are, uh, especially the FD ones, are, are, in my view, much better lenses and carry that extra cost with them too. 
Yeah, that was my first 1.2 lens also. And, and I think everyone probably goes through this thing where they're acquiring classic lenses and, and they and they think, you know, I, I got to have a 1.2 lens in my collection. And, and then you see what the prices are. And so I, yeah, I bought that lens and thought, well, maybe I got a bad one, you know. So I sold it and I bought another one and it was equally poor quality. It just, it just wasn't good at anything. And then and I sold it and ended up getting a, an AI Nikkor. 51.4 which was a splendid lens until i dropped it on the floor and bent the focus ring and then had to sell it for parts on ebay but so i don't have a 1.2 lens anymore but it was night and day difference in quality between those two lenses so how how are you coping without a 1.2 lens in your life Carl? i didn't need a 1.2 lens i think it's a, a lens that i wanted to have just to have it and i hardly ever used it and uh, it, it, it wasn't something that i really needed i have i mean i have a have a speed booster so that conceivably with my 1.4 Nikkor I'm getting 1.2 but um, I didn't take a whole lot of shots at f1.2 Johnny have you, have you used the the 50 millimeter um, 1.2 uh, the, the LTM version yet uh, yeah I um, that's actually the when I got that lens I stopped uh, worrying about trying to find a better 51.2 because I figured that was as good it was going to get at least for my the way I like to use them um, yeah I, ha I have that one the rangefinder lens I really like it it's um, has a reputation for uh, being very soft which if you only shot it on a film camera especially a rangefinder I can see why people would think that but um, that's because they're so hard to focus and the depth of field is so shallow at 1.2. I mean, I think it's an un unusable at 1.2 on a rangefinder because I honestly, please somebody tell me that I'm wrong, but I don't believe it's humanly possible to accurately focus a 1.2 on a rangefinder. I think about F2 is as good as you can really do consistently. So, you know, um, it has a reputation for being a soft, low contrast lens, which if you see it on film, it kind of is that magnified by the fact that you're probably never seeing anything in focus um in a in an image so but i you know putting it on a mirrorless camera it's sharp as heck in the center it's definitely softer on the contrast side which is easy to you know to bump up if you want to bump up the contrast uh, but the character is like no other lens i've ever seen if you're shooting it kind of wide you know to center your subject and get that you know the bokeh effect in the background it, it's almost like um uh, you have a, a two different physical objects, one layered over the other, because the background is just so um, soft and unusual. And I really haven't seen another lens that does that. I've seen sharper 1.2 lenses, um, uh, but I haven't seen any that have the character of that one. So yeah, that's that. That's probably my uh, my my one favorite all-time 50. I think um, the question from I mentioned in the. Uh, um, the, the beginning from Wendy, what's your one favorite all-time lens? I avoided answering that because I didn't want to have to really think about, well, okay, which one is really my favorite? But I, I mean, when it comes to 50s, um, that might be the one and only 50 millimeter lens that I would ever need. It's I, I think it's fantastic. The 1.2 that people seem to rave about is the um, Nikkor 58 millimeter, and it's very, oh, yeah. it's very, very expensive. And I don't, I've never seen anyone post a photo on our page shot with that lens. Um, and I know, and I'm not sure if it, you know, is that much better than a 50 or a 55, but um, it's one of those legendary um, yeah. lenses. Like, 
I I know a collector here in Chicago, uh, Lance Lagoni. If you're out there, Lance, um, and I he is a serious serious Nikon collector, um, and he doesn't have that lens, and he's got, he has. I think he's got almost everything, but I, I don't think he has it. And um, yeah, that's a tough one to find. And I, I, I don't know. I would, I, I, we have the 55 1.2 at the shop and I've used it. I've, I've, you know, tried it out and stuff and it is absolutely spectacular. I mean, the 3d pop and everything I think is amazing on that lens. Um, and it's not crazy expensive, you know, but I don't know how much more the 58 would have to, to offer i mean the 55 is you know is fantastic and that's a non ai lens i mean that's an original you know straight nikon f mount lens so it's not the uh most expensive high-end 1.2 you 50 you know you're gonna find so i don't know i guess if i was gonna buy an slr 51.2 lens i would probably i would probably get that one well um i've just had a quick search for uh, for that lens in our group and there are actually quite a few photos on there um, although most of them are taken by uh, Rick Ho and mm. uh, Jason Mann uh, Jason Mann interestingly has been uh, posting them with uh, with his Fuji GFX um, ah, I'm not okay. sure how much uh, cropping he's done but uh, I'm just looking at one with, with a with a nice picture of a cat at the moment and it looks it looks very very nice um but one of the things about that that lens it's um you know it's been carl you've said it, you've described it as a 58 1.2 but it's it's better known as the knocked n-o-c-t yeah um so if you do a search in the search search panel in our group uh for knocked uh, uh-huh. you will actually find quite a few photographs that have been taken with that lens but one of the things I've I've heard about this uh, about this lens is it's 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 meant to be and the word knocked is 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 part of the clue here it is actually meant to, meant to be specifically used in low light mm-hmm. um, I don't know how true that is I'm sure I've read that um, and well, so yeah it, it might not actually work as well as a a regular lens in normal lighting whereas if you if the lighting is low then it it somehow comes 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 to life perhaps yeah i well that and it's just referential to the to uh, the like uh, the noctilux you know everybody's looking for a like a noctilux at you know a whatever whatever fractional portion of the cost you could get versus an actual noctilux and i i think i mean i think in part it's it's just a term you know referring to the um to that particular lens and which is sort of a therefore a style of lens which is the ultra, ultra fast you know i and i suppose they're engineered to be to perform better specifically in low light you know um but i i i i think i think that's the knocked is m- more marketing mainly yeah um, it's, when i was by when i was um searching to buy uh, a Nikkor. Someone told me that same story, and um, I was trying to decide whether to buy the 50 or the 55. I couldn't afford the 58, but I was conversing with someone in our group, and I don't remember who it was, who had the 55. And um, he also mentioned that um, uh, his friend had the 58, and the 58 was a better lens, but it was a lens for for low light for photography, and that I didn't really need that unless that's what I wanted to do. 
and then it was down to the 50 or the 55 and i'm not sure that there's any difference in quality between the two i think mm -hmm. the 50 was they were about the same price uh, yeah I, um i we were having this uh, conversation a bit earlier too about rangefinder lenses versus slr lenses and maybe this adds uh, adds into that conversation a little bit um and the idea being that you you can build a um, a highly symmetrical lens uh, that's very well corrected with an, a, a rangefinder design more easily than you can with an SLR design because the rangefinder lens is actually going to uh, encroach, intrude, you know, build right into the camera body and sit very close to the film or sensor plane, whereas the SLR lens actually has to be entirely located outside. Um, of basically the camera mount because you've got the mirror to contend with in there. So the optical design is um, is different because you have to work around the you know the the mirror box. Um, so essentially, you're you know you can start with a a perfect optical design and then you kind of have to build off of that optical design to work around you know mirrors and such. So I, I think that's um, the advantage maybe of uh, rangefinder lenses in terms of sharpness and especially with faster lenses uh, is they can sit very, very close to the film plane and they can therefore be smaller. You know, you just gain a, a number of advantages by, um, by having that sort of lens design. Uh, of course, the disadvantage being again, going back to, I guess what I said earlier, and please somebody tell me I'm completely wrong on this is that um, most mere mortals can't, focus lenses much faster than f2 on a rangefinder you can with the, i think it's a bit of trial and error unless you really really know your your lens um but i think that's a really challenging proposition so then it becomes well is the knockalex more about shooting in the dark is it more about saying you have a lens that costs over five grand is it um you know what exactly is is the point with it on a rangefinder and uh i i know at least with the canon ltm that was a 1.2 um, in a time when there was no such thing really as a 1.2. Uh, and they were, they were far ahead of Leica in terms of, you know, lens speed and everybody was trying to one up Leica and actually Canon and Nikon kind of did it pretty well on and off there for a while. Um, so I, I think a lot of the stuff with the ultra fast lenses and the knocked lenses is, you know, it's kind of the connoisseur appealing to the connoisseur, um, and probably appealing very much to the manufacturer's uh, profit margins. <laughs> yeah, I really love the LTM lenses too. I think Johnny probably is the person that turned me on to rangefinder lenses because he was always raving about the um, the, the rangefinder lenses and he was using them on, on film cameras, but he was using them on his Fuji also. And um, at first I thought it was largely because of the small size because he talked about that more than anything else and they are really nice on my Fuji XE2 it's a small low profile camera and I like to do street photography and pairing it up with a small lens is really is really quite nice instead of so I can have a, a 51.4 lens on there and, it, and it's relatively small uh, or a 28 2.8 um, or 35 2.8 and it's very tiny but if I stick my um, my Nikko are on there with an adapter. It's this big giant lens and little camera. But I've, I've, I've realized lately over in the last month of shooting these things that the quality is just outstanding. I, I probably don't need or, or want any of my other 51.4 lenses now that I have this Canon LTM. It's just so good. And um, 
and though I have the 51.8 LTM, an earlier one, the, the, um, the silver one, and then I have the 35 2.8, and it's equally equally good. And uh, so I was thinking about it over the weekend and, 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 um, and thinking about our talking about this today and, and wondering, are they, are they really better than, um, than the average SLR lens? I, mean, I know there's fantastic SLR lenses. Um, mm. Simon has a, a, a planar that's it's a wonderful lens. I don't own that one. And, and my, yeah, my Nikkor 51.4 is a, a good lens, but it doesn't measure up to this, to this Canon LTM. So I, I, I looked up online, um, one of the people whose um, reviews I often look at, Ken Rockwell, and he actually has a, 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 a blog about uh, rangefinders versus SLRs where he compares the advantages of the two. And, uh, and so he talks about the design features that Johnny mentioned, but he, he, he says that the lenses are sharper and have less distortion than SLR lenses. And that's mm -hmm. interesting. I wonder, is that really true? And then I, and then I started wondering, you know, are they, are they, better because um, these lenses were designed to be um, put on Leica cameras or, or to be looked at seriously by people who are using Leica lenses. And so, so the manufacturers were striving to have something of a, of a higher quality uh, at an affordable price. Or is it all just a myth and they're not really better than, well, than SLR lenses? I, do, I don't know. I, I just know that I like the ones that I have. I yeah, I, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I, I think there's there probably is something to be said about them being um, uh, potentially better uh, than, than SLR lenses, but that's only when you're, you're looking at the uh, the contemporary lenses that were available at the day, uh, at the time. Um, you know, we'd say the, the 50mm uh, Canon 1.4, uh, in my view, is not a better lens than my uh, contact Yashica mount SLR planar lens, but there's the, the flip side is there's there's quite a you know, uh, probably about 20 years in, in design uh, between those two lenses. So uh, SLR lenses would have certainly caught up in terms of image quality uh, and, and lack of distortion compared to a, you know, a design that goes back maybe 30 years prior to it. Um, certainly you can look at today's modern SLR lenses and, you know, I'm I'm pretty sure that, uh, you know, you look at some of the, you know, the top Zeiss lenses now, um, are going to be you know, virtually distortion free and uh, you know, the, you know, the actual resolution on them is, is, is incredible. Um, they're SLR lenses, they're not um, uh, rangefinder lenses and it wouldn't surprise me if they would out resolve and uh, have less distortion than a, than, than a modern Leica lens. It would not surprise me at all but the, the amount of work that's gone into producing those you know, multi-element designs, you know, 12, 13 elements on a, on a 50 millimeter lens, you know, it, it's, it's enormous. So it's, it's probably as much about the capability of the optics maker um, than it is about the actual design. Although I guess if people put as much effort into the rangefinder lenses as they have had to do with the SLR lenses, then perhaps rangefinder lenses are or could be even better uh, than SLR lenses, maybe, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, sure, I get, I get yeah. it. I, you know, I think it's interesting that um, I, I don't know that Canon has been able to succeed in doing that, uh, at least not through the lenses that we consider classic lenses. Because let's say I've I've had a I've had an FD, I've had a couple of FDs, I've had a, a several FLs, and uh, I've had an SSC. I think I've had almost all of the of the classic manual focus older Canon lenses. And um, 
I was I never have been able to get an image that really had nice 3D pop. Um, and and I've had this history of showing Simon photos um, and private messages and saying, does this have 3D pop? And him saying no, or him saying um, you're getting close, or it's a little bit better, but you're not there. And and, and then, now this this LTM 51.4, which is probably I think a 1961 lens. If I set it at f2.8 and um, and set up the shot right, of course, with proper lighting and distances and things, it just happens. I, I don't have to work at it. With my AIS Nikkor 51.4, I can get 3D pop. I have to work at it a little bit, but it just happens with this lens with, without any planning. And and it was interesting. I, I took a just a photo this weekend. It wasn't planned. I walked into a coffee shop to get a, a latte and um, there were some guys sitting over at a table and I just um, had my Fuji and the 51.4 lens and I focused real quick, took a shot. And when I got home, I looked at it and thought, wow, this is really good. The lighting was perfect, but the, the photo is just really nice. And I, I posted it. And um, and so, you know, Vlad Kern um, uh, said, uh, wow, this, this is amazing. It, it looks like it was taken with a Leica lens. I'm floored by this image. And so it has that it has that look to it. So um, you know maybe my view about rangefinder lenses now is is jaded or, or influenced heavily by these recent Canon LTMs that I've purchased. Well, I, I, Simon, I think nailed it with what he. I was going to basically make the same comment: is that if you look at when these lenses were built and um, remember what the world looked like as far as camera design and everything and you know, SLRs in the early 60s were still a, a relatively new concept. I mean, SLR, SLRs had been around, but they they weren't, um, they, they had not yet had the mark, kind of market, same place in the market that they are now, where they've kind of, you know, become the norm. Um, but I mean, it was much easier, it's much easier to make, to take a simple lens formula and perfect it and, and make it, uh, work really well when your challenge is, you know, um, air, air, air to air, you know, air to lens surface. You know, you, the, the whole challenge with building lenses up until modern era basically was that you had to have as few elements as possible, right? Um, and you had to do whatever you could with coatings, and that, that technology has just improved. So, you know, you, the advances that have been made are what make the SLR lenses so good, but it, it was not as difficult to make a really, really good uh, rangefinder lens, you know, back in say the late fifties, early sixties, if anything, you were looking at probably the very uh, best evolution of optical design for those lenses to the point where, you know, Canon, Canon's the 50 LTM lens that you're talking about, um, Carl gets, uh, you know, gets referred to as a like a poor man's Leica lens because you know there would really have been a thought at the time well do I need to upgrade to a, a Canon M camera when I have or I sorry a, a Leica M camera when I can get a Canon LTM camera with lenses that are basically just as good because they're going to perform so well um, now those are both range finders but point being the lens design was so good at that point and this is before computer assisted design and everything but they were they were just really remarkably well made lenses. And as the SLR era progressed, you know, we're talking about at the same moment that um, computer aided design, big advances in lens coding, et cetera, was also happening. So, you know, no doubt you're going to get by the time you're up into the you know the late '60s, early '70s, you have lenses that are they're both on par with each other because 
just the ability to build them has um, improved. But on a fundamental level, it's just easier to make a really good rangefinder lens because you've got less to contend with because um, you can seat it closer to the camera body or the inside the camera. And you, you don't you don't have to fight as many battles to make a really great lens. Yeah. There's, there's something you, you mentioned uh, about you know, comparing the Canon for 3D pop versus the, the, the Nikkor 50 1.4 AIS that you have. And uh, I've got that lens as well. And I, I view it as pretty much the equal as my, of, of my planar. In some ways, it's, it, it's, it's better. Um, it's just a shame the focus ring turns the wrong way for focusing um, because that really annoys me. Um, but there you go. Um, but you, 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 what you described there about you, you, know, you find it hard, or you, you just seem to get the pop with the with the with the with the Canon, and it seems to be harder to do that with the with the Nikon. Um, you also have to look at that as look at that as being anecdotal evidence rather than. You know, actual empirical evidence, if you like, because of course, you know, if you if you happen to have the the Nikon lens with you at that particular time and took that particular shot, uh, how do you how do you not know that you wouldn't have got the, exactly the same kind of uh, quality? And, you, and and ultimately, we just don't know. I mean, sometimes one lens is better than other. The yeah, there's, there's there's no doubt about that. But when I've done um, yeah, the occasional lens tests, and I, you know, I did, did some relatively recently with twenty-eight millimeter lenses, and some lenses which I, you know, pretty much held dear to me when put up head to head against other lenses, taking exactly the same subject in exactly the same lighting, have really been shown up um, for a lack of uh, resolving power, especially. Um, the flip side is though the uh, such as like a lens like the Sigma uh, Mini Wide Two, which is something I've always championed as being a, a great budget lens. Uh, it's also got a great close focus on it, um, and it produces really nice photographs. When you go to the points of uh, pixel peeping, which really nobody should ever really do, but we do. Um, you, you, you compare that against some, you know, whether it be a, a Zeiss lens uh, that I tried it against, or in fact I tried it against a couple of Zeiss lenses, and also the uh, the Nikkor 28 uh, AIS. Um, the resolving power is nowhere near as good as those lenses. Uh, but when you, you come back and look at the picture as a whole, it still produces a really, really pleasing picture. Um, so it's, but the, the point really being you, you can't necessarily judge a, a lens just because you went out there and it didn't perform as well as you would have liked it to have done, whereas the previous day, another lens did a great job for you. No, that's true. And and, I, and as I think back to what I've been doing, um, it's the Canon that I have been picking up to go down to street fairs and, um, and um, farmers markets and things where there are people and I'm getting these 3D pop shots and um, the AIS 51.4 um, Nikkor I've not been using for those kind of images. I've used it probably, I haven't had it that long, but I've probably used it more for bouquet shots and focus shots. And I've, and, and I have, I've taken a, some pictures where I've gotten 3D pop. I like that. I mean, that's a wonderful lens. I would never sell it. And there's some attribute about it that I can't describe in words. I, I always say that it has a really clean look. The images have a really clean look. I don't even know what the hell it means, but um, it's it's right up there in the top of, of the 51.4s that I've had. I think another another big factor uh, when deciding whether one lens is better than another is just actually how comfortable you are using that particular lens. I've, I've said this many, many times before in our, our conversations, and 
I I I love my planar as much for the way it handles as it as the images it produces. But the, my view is, if you if you love the lens that you're using, you will get the most out of that particular lens. Right. You know what? Another interesting thing is related to using the lens. So when I take these um, LTM lenses out and I have them adapted to my Fuji, um, they're on a, a Yunnan focusing helicoid. And I find myself using the focusing on the helicoid way more often than on the lens. I think it's just more comfortable. It's a bigger ring to hold on to. And uh, that's an odd thing. I'll, I'll often find myself setting the lens on infinity when I'm walking around in a group of people and just focusing a little bit with the with the helicoid. Yeah, I, I think that's that's exactly the same the same point, isn't it? It's about is about the about the handling. And I think actually that that's where I I really appreciate RF lenses. I've got a few of them. I've got some. I mean, I've got a a collapsible Sumicron, which I've not used for for a while now, and that's LTM thirty nine version. And uh, last year, I think it was last year, um, coming through through my business, I had a um, a Sumicron M, um, which I you know, I gave it I gave it a go, and uh, and it was predictably a, a great lens. That it was optically absolutely fantastic. It was certainly uh, from a pure IQ view, image quality view, it was better than my 1956 Subicron. But I far preferred the images from my old lens than I did from this new one. But more to the point, apart from the fact that I liked the look of the old lens, I also preferred, preferred the handling of the old lens as well. I, I didn't like the, uh, there was this big um, knob with a finger-shaped um, uh, groove in it so you could um, move the uh, move the focus ring uh, while it's on a, uh, a rangefinder camera which I found that when I was using that on my on my Sony it just didn't make any any kind of sense to me when I was you know if I if I was using a, an SLR camera I've got a, a far uh, better sized and uh, you know it just seems to be a, a more ergonomic uh, focus ring to work with uh, which just makes me you know more comfortable uh, using using the larger lens yeah i um simon i i completely agree about uh probably loving the lens you have is a makes a big difference um and i i i guess this kind of ties all all into several things we've been talking about today um which is i i can talk about a recent acquisition new gear acquisition that um kind of converges all these points so i just got a canon uh, 35 uh, f 2.8 LTM, which is a similar lens to the one that Carl has that he's talked about quite a bit, but this is the earlier version of that lens. So it's the small, uh, tiny, heavy, all chrome Cyranar version that was uh, introduced in 1951. They built it for about uh, 10, 10, 11 years. Um, and it's, a, it's a, just a little planar formula lens um, and it, it has typical to a, you know, planar has, has excellent sharpness and, and good micro contrast. Um, and I got this lens specifically as a replacement for, um, my Jupiter 12, which I've been shooting quite a bit, um, and, and was getting some really great images out of that lens that I really like, but the more I used it, especially here, it's winter in Chicago. So I'm using this, um, Jupiter 12 here in Chicago in the winter on a rangefinder camera, um, and and having a lot of trouble with it ergonomically for um, some reasons that are specific to 
the design, probably some are specific to the build quality of, you know, Soviet lenses um, somewhat generally. But um, the more I use the Jupiter 12, um, I, I was just having a lot of trouble with it on, as a as a day-to-day user. Um, you know, the focus ring is probably needed to be re-greased, so it was a little inconsistent. And then using it out on the street in the cold, the grease gets solidified. And now I'm like trying to turn this focus ring and now I'm, I'm grabbing the lens barrel and now I've got the hand, my hand in front of my rangefinder window and now I can't focus. And so it's like one problem on top of another. Um, that and just the recessed aperture ring inside the front of the lens. Uh, so you're kind of sticking your hand, you know, into, into the lens, front of the lens to change the aperture ring. I solved that by putting a step-up ring on the, on the front of the lens and I could just turn the step-up ring, but just still not ideal. So I started looking around for another... 35 millimeter focal length lens to use on my um, my rangefinders and um, looking a lot at the the Canon 35 f2, which is considered to be you know sort of way up there quality wise, similar to the the 51.4 that that we've been discussing. Um, but anyway, I I um, that lens is very difficult to find, uh, and I saw an eBay auction for a very nice uh, 35 f2.8. It looked like a, someone who's selling off an old collection they've had for many years. So I got this, this new, um, this new Canon and it, it just kind of instantly solved all of my ergonomic problems that I was really kind of struggling with, with the Jupiter. Um, it, it's got, uh, you know, the aperture is click stop. So I have hard stops at each, you know, aperture that are very, you know, they're well marked. Um, it's got a focus tab under the bottom of the lens. So now I have my hand where it should be, which is underneath the lens to focus it rather than in front of the rangefinder window. Um, and uh, everything just, um, it, build quality is nice. It's nice and, it's nice and tight. Um, just everything is, is exactly right about this lens, except for the fact that it takes 34 millimeter filters, which is a kind of archaic size, which means I have to um, spend some time uh, looking for vintage 34 millimeter filters now. Oh dear God, no, please not that. Please don't make me look for more filters. <laughs> cause I, cause everybody knows how much I hate, uh, hate filters, I guess. No kidding. I, I love filters. So I get to now search out 34 millimeter oddball filters to go on my, on my Canon. Um, but I, I really enjoy this lens and it, it kind of touches on everything we just talked about because you've got the, this really, it's extremely tiny. I mean, it's a tiny, tiny lens. Um, and it's a planar design. So it's a simple formula that's very highly refined, extends right, you know, into the, into the camera. And you just get all those benefits of it being a small, um, really well-designed rangefinder lens. Uh, so that one is, uh, making me very happy at, at the moment. Um, and, and, and I think it brings out a lot of these, uh, a lot of this idea about why rangefinder lenses are so good. So when you say it, it 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 extends into the camera, is that like is does that is that in a similar kind of way to the, the how the Jupiter Twelve goes way into the camera? Well, no, I mean it, actually it doesn't extend. It's only when you're when you're focusing the lens, <laughs> um, you know the way the the way the focus works. It, it's not that it it extends far into the camera. The, actually, the lens elements on this lens don't really extend into the camera. The only thing that extends into the camera is is really the the LTM um, 
uh, focus, you know, the back of the lens, which push, it pushes the follower to, you know, focus the lens. So really that the elements themselves don't um, recess that far in, but that's only because it's a shorter register distance. If there was a, a mirror box to be working around, you know, this lens would be an entirely different design. And um, so, so it, it doesn't, although it doesn't physically protrude the elements themselves, the, the reason it doesn't do that is because it's on a rangefinder. If it was an SLR lens, it would be designed around the fact that it couldn't sit close enough to the film plane. So, um, so yeah, it, it, it it's an inc for what this lens does i'm i'm just really amazed by how small it is and how how well they manufactured it um it's it's just a, it's a it's a really great little lens and um it, it's a it's a joy to use which brings up your point simon is that you, i think you make better pictures when you really enjoy what you're using which probably goes to the ultimate you know point about cameras and collecting and all this is you don't need fancy anything really to make great pictures. Um, but I do think that having equipment that you really like makes you want to shoot more. And I think you get maybe better results for that reason. Um, you know, you, you can, you could walk around with a, and I have these, you know, toy kind of camera Vivitar stuff where it's just a fixed 35 millimeter focus free and they actually make great pictures and they're fun to use in their own right but they're not um, inspiring to use. Maybe let's put it that way. And I, I find, you know, like this lens on the camera that I'm using, I find it inspiring to use. And I'm using this combination of, um, you know, camera and lens m much more than anything else in the moment. Oh, I should, I guess I should say what I'm using. Uh, it's a, the Canon 4SB, which I think I might've mentioned on the last couple of episodes. And I'm using this camera almost exclusively right now. Um, and it's rapidly becoming one of my all-time favorite cameras that I will probably be using a lot, you know, continuously going forward. And it's all because I, I just like the system so much and it, it inspires me to want to shoot more, which is a really nice feeling. So Johnny, I feel that way about the Canon 7. And um, I've been shooting a lot more film now that I've gotten it than I ever did with an SLR film camera. And, um, you, and you have that you have a 7s also but you yeah. like this other you like this other camera much better to handle i yeah i i like the 7 a lot um but i i feel like it's just it's a physically much larger camera um uh well not horribly so but it's it is just bigger and i i, I feel like it's a little bit more imposing for what i do which is mainly i don't consider myself a well i don't know Maybe I'm kidding myself. I, I, I don't. I wouldn't call myself a street photographer, but the vast majority of when I take photos is before and after work, on a lunch break, whatever, just walking around. So most of the the photography I do is done on the street, and to me, the Canon uh, screw mount, the little Canon screw mount, it's so much less imposing. Um, and much the guess I guess lower profile than even the Canon Seven. I'm actually got them side by side right now. And and weight wise, I mean they're actually they're not that much different. But the Canon Seven, uh, I have the Seven S here, and it it's just physically a much bigger camera. And um, I feel like being really kind of low profile is is kind of nice. And I've thought about this a lot. I I think being low profile is more 
the way you feel using the camera than even the can the camera itself. Um, it's kind of like the thing with black cameras. I don't think black cameras are any more stealthy than chrome colored cameras. I think they feel more stealthy for the photographer because they're black. And so therefore it maybe gives you a more of an ease to feel like you're being more low, low profile shooting, but I don't, I don't feel like they're any lower profile in actuality, but it's just, it goes back to what Simon said about how does it make you feel using it? Does it feel right? Does it make you want to use it? And so, yeah, the Canon seven, as much as I love it, and I, I'm going to be, I'm going to be using it more kind of here in the summer when it's just easier to carry things around. But when I've, you know, got all the, it's winter here. I got all the clo heavy clothes on and layers and everything. It's just easier to pull out a small camera and use a small camera, I feel like. And the Canon, um, little Canon uh, 4 SB screw mount to me is really perfect in that regard. So yeah, the Canon, Canon 7S is going to get some more uh, shooting time here as the weather gets nicer. I've been kind of planning on it. I would like to get a little side grip for it um, so that it is more of an easy one-hand handhold camera, which, you know, again, that's something that, that this little Canon has no issue with. I mean, it's just kind of perfect one-hand camera as is. So, Yeah. I want to drag the conversation back a little bit uh, to when you're describing the difference between the Jupiter... 12 and the uh, the 35 um, 2.8 that you picked up and we've I've, I've mentioned about it going back into the uh, uh, inside the camera um, and, it, and, yeah. it, and it and it doesn't um, whereas the the Jupiter 12 absolutely does it's got a yeah. rear element that gets that sits very very close to the well the the, the film plane as it was designed but uh, these days if you um, if you have a camera that's compatible with it, because some cameras aren't compatible with the Jupiter 12 uh, because right. they tend to hit the um, the surround around the sensor uh, before they can actually get far enough back to uh, reach infinity. But uh, Sony A7 has no problem um, accommodating a Jupiter 12, but it does have a really big problem uh, with um, very, very soft edges um, when when used with it, yeah. when, when the two things are put together, and the reason for that is because the the angle of light uh, hits the sensor at the edges um, at too oblique an angle for it to read right. it properly. Um, mm -hmm. I know there's in the last uh, week or so there's been a, uh, a couple of a couple of sensor uh, announcements, uh, one by Sony, but for us. Uh, Classic lens users. There's potentially a more interesting uh, announcement that came out with by Panasonic, who have uh, produced um, a very high uh, pixel count global sensor. So it actually take effectively all the pixels take a photograph at the same time instead of uh, reading from from the top to the bottom, uh, which that's how you end up with um, some odd-looking uh, photographs of it when things are moving moving quickly. But more to the point and more relevant for what we're talking about here is that the angle uh, at which the, the light can reach the sensor um, is, is being increased dramatically uh, with that kind of technology that Panasonic have, uh, um, have, have announced very recently. So that, that's potentially very, very good news for us uh, classic lenses users, especially with the, the, the difficult wide-angle uh, rangefinder lenses. Yeah, you know, um, it's interesting that um, there are, there's a lot of variation in how far that rear element protrudes on these 
lenses, the, the, that Jupiter lens you mentioned, that, that's the extreme example. It's a bizarre looking thing. But um, last night I was packing up some lenses that I'm going to sell on eBay, and, and one of them I'm going to get rid of is a Voigtlander snapshot Scopar. And um, I hadn't remembered until, because I haven't used it for a while, and it's been sitting on a Bessa camera body. And um, when I took it off, I realized, oh, yeah, wow, the, the back of that lens extends way farther into the camera than on the um, Voigtlander uh, Super Wide Hilliar 15, which doesn't extend much at all. And, and in fact, it took me 20 minutes searching to find the lens cap, the back cap for it, because you can't take a normal LT, um, TM39 ca cap and stick it on. Or it, it won't screw on because it's touching the, the back of the lens. So that's another one that extends back relatively far. And then the little Jupiters, uh, the three and the and the twelve, they they don't extend back hardly at all. So um, a lot of variability. Yeah, it's it, it is to do with that. Uh, it, it's at the wider end where where that that rear element uh, design comes in. I mean, the Jupiter uh, twelve was a uh, biogon design. Um, so uh, and I think there were later ones as well. Yes, there's, there's the uh, on the Contax G cameras. I think there's one, possibly two biogon designs there which again I'm pretty sure will probably have the same kind of issue when when mate it to a to a Sony sensor right mm -hmm. but but the super wide Hilliar is 15 millimeter and it it doesn't extend b back as far um, as the 25 millimeter and I'm not sure the, yeah the, it does a bit but you're right not as much as 25 and then actually the 21 millimeter um, uh, Voigtlander lens extends quite a bit as well and also needs that kind of deeper rear lens cap also so yeah, those are the wide the wide angle lenses are in particular a really good example of of this whole issue. A, a second piece of uh, news over the last uh, two weeks is I mean we've had the I've just mentioned the Panasonic one and I think actually there's a Fuji tie-in uh, with 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 the with the Panasonic sensor. I'm sure I read somewhere that Fuji were, were collaborating with uh, with Panasonic. So. You know, there's a possibility that they might be able to bring up that technology um, out in in their cameras. But of course, uh, Fuji have also just launched a new camera. I mean, we don't really do news, but I think it's probably worth talking about the the new Fuji XH1 because it's a mirrorless camera, um, and instantly anything that's mirrorless has got to be of interest to us classic lens users um and the yeah. the hx1 is particularly interesting i guess because it's 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 the camera that that fuji said was impossible to make uh it's it's a fuji um x mount sensor camera with ibis I was hoping that one of you might run, run with that, but uh, shall I carry well, on? You, <laughs> yeah, since you, uh, you, you guys, you're the Ibis freaks, you guys. I could care less. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that, that's the thing. You, you know, Carl, 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 I'm not sure if Carl really knows what it is as far as uh, Ibis is concerned. I don't have it on my Fuji XE2. That's the camera that I use all the time. Although I'm, I'm going to buy a Sony Alpha 7 too. And then I'll have one again with Ibis. I will. I probably won't have anything with Ibis. For I mean, I just got accustomed to it. I initially was taking photos and and forgetting that I can't hand hold a, a that camera at a one twentieth of a second without getting some some movement in the image. And um, and then I I just keep the ISO turned up higher on the camera. It's not a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just just find when I I use. 
Uh, actually, it's more about when I, I use a camera, I think I've mentioned this before, if I use a camera that has IBIS, but the IBIS isn't working or it's, it's switched off, it, it, it's very, very difficult, it seems, to hold the camera um, steady, even at you know, where the, the, is it the reciprocal speeds, um, so uh, a 50mm yeah. yeah. lens and the 50th of a second, I, I seem to struggle even then, but when you use a camera that doesn't have IBIS, it, it seems I can I can take a steadier picture at a at a, a lower shutter speed. So I think the most there's just a bit of wobble in the uh, in the sensor. At least that's what it feels like to me. I don't know if that that's that's true or not. But I I, I really welcome um, the, uh, the the new Fuji. Um, I think it's it's great news that it's got IBIS because I'm a I'm a big fan of IBIS. I think it's absolutely wonderful. Um, I've taken so many uh, almost like you know uh, nighttime gorilla shooting. Um, around streets where you don't want to be carrying a tripod, and you just want to, yeah. you know, grab a shot and put, ideally put the the camera back in your pocket as quickly as possible. Although that's not easy when I'm walking around with a, with a bright <laughs> brass petzval when I'm doing it. So uh, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, yeah. but I, yeah, I, I mean, I haven't noticed it much lately because I've been using these tiny lenses on the XE2. I, I've, I shoot that 15 millimeter Voigtlander quite often. And then I'm shooting other very small, um, wide lenses, and um, even the 50 mil lenses I'm using aren't, aren't, aren't large lenses. And I'm usually shooting out in a day, and the shutter speed's really high. And uh, when I noticed it was, I was down in uh, South Florida prior to a meeting last week, and it took along a, a 135 millimeter lens. And um, the first shots I was taking were out in the bright sun, so I was shooting at you know, two thousandths of a second, and it was perfectly fine. And then I went back into an area with mangrove and to do some bokeh shots, and the shutter speed was getting down low, and I, I could just feel I could feel that was the thing was shaking. I couldn't get it, I couldn't get it straight. Um, to, to and I couldn't even even at a you know one a hundredth of a second or two hundredth of a second, I could notice them. I was moving around when I was trying to take the shot. Yeah. As much as I like being a smartass about IBIS, I mean, it's, it's a great, it is a great thing. I mean, I just, I don't, I just don't, I rarely shoot with lenses longer than a hundred, 105 millimeter. I, I mean, I hardly ever shoot anything <laughs> longer than that. So I, the problem for me is kind of eliminated because you can handhold if like Simon mentioned the reciprocal, um, maybe just to, to explain that for some that don't know that, you know, the concept is that your shutter speed should be equal, equal to or greater than the focal length of the lens. So, you know, a 100 millimeter lens, you'd want a, a shutter speed of one, one hundredth or above, or a 50 millimeter lens, you'd want a 50th or a 60th or above to eliminate the magnification of camera shake onto the image. Um, yeah. And that's easier to do with, think about it, the wider mm -hmm. the lens goes, the easier it is to handhold because you're not going to see the movement, which is, you know, one thing I like about the shooting the Voigtlander 15 millimeter, even on film, I can shoot it in relatively low light. I can handhold it at a 20th of a second easily. Yeah. And, and I'm going to get a pretty sharp image if, you know, uh, all, if I've done my, my work. Okay. But I'm not sure on it with, with Ibis, I, probably could hand hold it down to an eighth of a second or something i would guess um well i remember one time when simon and i were goofing around seeing how how um how slow we could hand hold a shot and we were <laughs> we were getting to the point where we were hand holding shots at a half of a second and they were sharp <laughs> and they were perfectly sharp with ibis yeah. yeah 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 exactly i mean that's it's funny that's like theoretically possible with a 
non-IBIS camera, I guess, if you can um, manage to pause your heartbeat because <laughs> there comes a point, no matter how steady you can hold something, if you're holding a camera and you know that your heart is beating blood through your body, whether you know it or not, or notice it or not, you're, you know, that, that blood pumping through your hand into through your body is, is going to move the camera a tiny bit, just the nature of being a living, breathing human being. So, you know, there's a point at which you just, no matter what, without some sort of assist like IBIS, you just can't hand hold it and get a steady shot. It may look steady, but on close examination, there's going to be a little bit of camera movement. So I like that explanation. It's like Johnny, the cardiologist photographer. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I'm not I'm not a doctor but I play one on the podcast <laughs> well I think um, with uh, that explanation of the limitations of the human body by James uh, I think that's probably a good time to end today's podcast um, so Johnny uh, how can people keep up with you on various social media outlets Yep, you uh, can keep up with me mainly on Instagram. I'm at Sisson Photography uh, there. And I'm also at the sales counter at Central Camera Company in Chicago pretty much every day of the week. So you can catch me there in person. And Cole? So I think the most consistent place is on our Photography with Classic Lenses Facebook page. Um, I post there. And I do have a, a Carl Havens Photography Facebook page that I post to periodically. And um, I actually um, I'm an, have an Instagram account now. <laughs> as, of la- as of last week, I and I posted th- two or three photos, and I and I even went through and I liked some of Simon's photos on there. Although I don't really know how to use it as a social media platform, but I, I'll get there. And um, and I have a Flickr page. So on my Flickr page, it's my name. It's it's Carl Havens, Carl with a K, and it's capital Carl and capital H. On my um, Instagram account is, is Carl Havens, but it's all under, it's, it's all low, low, lowercase with a, um, uh, what do they call that thing, an, under, an underscore line uh, between the Carl and the Havens. And I can be found in a few places. I'm on Instagram as well as Simon P. Forster, it's one word. Uh, you can search for me on Flickr uh, for Simon Forster. And I also have an eBay shop, which again, if you can do a search on that one, it's uh, just search for It's Fozzy, that's I-T-S-F-O-Z-Z-Y. And you can find us all regularly on the Facebook group, Photography with Classic Lenses. And I hope you've enjoyed this week's podcast, and it'd be great if you can join us again next week. Thank you. Okay, there we go again with no, no one talking. <laughs> you, you, you were the one that wanted to talk about LTM, Carl. I know, I know. Yeah, Carl, someone, come on. But, but, but someone has to say something on that. You wanted me to explain it to you? Is that what yeah, it was? You, you have to say, you know, I, well, maybe Carl can uh, give talk about this. I don't know. <laughs> okay. So, Carl. Make it, make, make it good, you know. The, the uh, or what did, you, what did you say? You could say the... Um, the infamous Carl Havens, or uh, what was it you said last week about someone? <laughs> I feel like I'm introducing, you know, Kim Il Jung here or something. Yeah, so <laughs> great leader. Come, Tell come, us come. what you have to say now. Yeah, re- really, Carl, you've just got to come in there and say something like, "I, I love LTM lenses." They, okay, they, all right. All right. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, Johnny. Uh, okay, so we're, are we still recording? Uh, yeah, we'll start start again. Okay, here we go. Ready? You may talk.
Go ahead, Johnny. <laughs> Could you talk me in, Simon? <laughs> yeah. what, what would you What would you like to be talking about next, no, Johnny? Kidding. What do you What do you think, Johnny? Uh, so uh, here, here, um, b- before we before we start, I can launch into a big long thing about ergonomics if you like. Um, I I yeah. was going to talk about, and I guess it's apropos. I was going to talk about the new Canon I have, the thirty five LTM versus the Jupiter. That's all ergonomics. So. Yeah, well, we're on, we've probably got around about 30, oh, okay. 34 minutes okay. of recording so far. Go, go for it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, I, I just, okay. so I just finished off by saying, you know, I prefer the, I prefer something yeah. larger in my hand. <laughs> yeah, okay. There you go. Yeah, I, I prefer to have something <laughs> I like in my hand, too. <laughs> all right. Oh. Uh, all right. Here we go. Wow. Just, just something I've I've got to mention. Um, I've I finally finished off my black and white roll on my Bronica. Woohoo! Oh god, yeah. Yeah, but that was that's the good bit. Um, oh. The bad bit was I thought I had a, a changing bag, uh, and I didn't. <laughs> um, but then I I caught out the corner of my eye my Agfa. Uh, Rondinax, I think it's called that. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, automated Rondinax, yeah. daylight uh, uh, developing device. And I watched the YouTube video, and it's 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 a one twenty one as well. So it, yeah, it's called a sixty for some reason, but it's uh, it's for one twenty. Um, and I thought, oh, this looks easy. This looks really really good. And uh, and the guy that was I was watching, he he mentioned, uh, you know, you you it's not it doesn't work with uh, thin modern film. Uh, so oh, obviously, yeah. yeah, there is film that is thick enough for it, and I think he was using FP4 in it, um, or HP. Yeah, I think it was FP4 he was using, um, yeah. which I assume is, is thick enough, and it, and it went really easily. And I thought this is just so easy. So I, I, I did exactly the same as he did, and then I was pulling the uh, the backing paper out. It was coming, and it started to get very, very stiff. And I thought oh, uh, this isn't good. In the end, I just you know gave it a good old pull, and I, I got all the paper out of it. Although it. You know, I ripped it out in the end. Um, yeah, and and then I went to the. You then have to turn a lever to open up the uh, the tank to allow it to the film to go into a different section, and it jammed. Um, oh. so, so now I've got this film in the in the wrong part of the uh, of the tank, um, and I it's not particularly light light proof. I don't think, um, and I'm I'm psyching myself up now to uh, you know. Op- open this thing up in a changing bag and tr- trying to get it onto a reel and get it developed, but I I I don't know if it's going to work at all. So uh, that's my tale of woe. 